Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Keiji Kimaladu. This week, we are presenting a special series of speakers from the 2022 Camden Conference. The Camden Conference convenes annually to bring a variety of diplomats, professors, journalists, and political officials to address a topic of international political and humanitarian significance. For the 35th Camden Conference, the topic was Europe Challenged at Home and Abroad. This program was pre-recorded on Saturday, February 26, 2022 for broadcast at this time. Today, we bring you a two-part session. Starting off today is Judy Dempsey, Senior Fellow at Carnegie Europe. Introducing Dempsey today is host and Senior Editor of Marketplace Morning Report, David Brancaccio. Hi, David Brancaccio here, the uh, public radio guy, Marketplace Morning Report. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. The main course this morning, Judy Dempsey joins us from Berlin, where she's a senior fellow at Carnegie Europe and editor-in-chief of the very informative outlet. It's a blog called Strategic Europe. I've become a convert to that. Thank you, Judy. Her biography is in the conference program. We'll tell you more about her career as a journalist for leading international publications, where she covered some of the biggest stories in Europe since the fall of the wall. She's also the author of a book on Angela Merkel. For her presentation this morning, Ms. Dempsey will answer, <laughs> put a pretty big question to, to Ms. Dempsey. Um, that'll take us into some of the hardest, maybe intractable issues that countries face. Ms. Dempsey, welcome. And please tell us, here's the title, Will COVID-19 and Climate and Migration and Corruption Make or Break Europe? The floor is yours. Oh, thank you very much. David, and, and thank you, the Canton Conference organizers, for inviting me. It's um, what a pity we can't be there in, in reality, but we're here virtually, which is a big plus. So this title after back and forth, and we agreed on it. And um, I messaged my colleague here, Otan, saying, Otan, I think I've bitten more than I can chew. But then I was thinking of it, and it sort of crystallized. Um, sadly, because of the war in Ukraine. So uh, what I'm going to give you is um, a, a, a kind of um, presentation which tries to link all the four issues together and link them together on the issues of soft power and link them together on the issues of security and link them together on the issues of a kind of disingenuous presentation of what Europe thinks it is and how it sells itself. So let me begin with um, COVID, which is no stranger to any of us and has been with us for a very, very long time. Um, first of all, the good news um, is that um, the EU has put forward an enormous financial package, a recovery package, uh, for all the member states, provided they meet certain criteria. And this money will be allocated to these member states to give them recovery, to look at the infrastructure and other issues. This is an enormous sum of money. And the very interesting aspect of these sums of money is that for once Germany came on board to, to actually become, to, to actually have a more integrated fiscal and financial and economic policy towards the EU. So in some ways, the, the pandemic did forge a kind of cautious a more integrated European Union. Because if you don't have economic integration and financial and fiscal integration, 
um, and even political integration, Europe will remain a, a kind of organization of disparate states with different threat assessments and different attitudes on how to deal with crisis. This is the first thing. Secondly, I don't think we should have any illusions about COVID. Um, this is a pandemic which has tested the European Union. And in fact, the European Union has come out um, not particularly well in the beginning. Uh, the Commission was very, very slow off the blocks. And um, Angela Merkel, the former chancellor, was in the lead in getting things rolling. But in fact, if you really look at the, the situation now in Europe, it's actually not particularly good. Hats off to the Spaniards. They suffered a huge amount and they went into huge quarantine. They seem to have it under control. And despite um, protests among most populations in Europe, uh, the Italians and the Spaniards are acutely aware of how fast uh, new elements of, of, of the pandemic uh, um, spreads. But whatever uh, the, the EU ambassador to Washington said last night, um, the vaccination uptake is extraordinarily low in some countries, particularly in Bulgaria and Romania, because of fake news, because of suspicion of the state, because of corruption, because of the way it's been handled, because of the lack of communication. And since these are EU members, they can travel freely throughout the European Union. So uh, we have to be very careful that we can, if, if, if the European Union leaders want to pat themselves in the back, they should look at the, the very low uh, uptake of the vaccinations in some countries, which actually really, really need it. And in fact, every country needs it. So this is the first point of the COVID. Second point of, of COVID is the political ramifications, which really cannot be underestimated. Um, there's a couple of elements here. It, it, it played into the hands of, of populists in some ways, but also reignited a kind of um, antipathy towards the state, whether it's from the far left or the far right. Now, the far left and the far right um, actually were uh, vaccine um, deniers, even probably corona deniers. And I know so many people saying, oh, this is all spread, it's all propaganda and so on, but they were against the vaccinations. But um, it's very easy to... Um, demonized um, such people and we have to be very very careful because within in between these two groups are actually ordinary people who just don't like the state interfering and telling them what to do and so um, it is really it has become a kind of tussle between the state and the role of the state and how it presents itself and the role of the individual and individual rights you know, is it is it right that an individual doesn't get vaccinated, but on the other hand, causes risks to others? It's a huge debate. But at the end of the day, it is the role of the state and local government and indeed the media to communicate what is at stake and why this is important. And it's also very important to actually reestablish or keep on board the, the science element of this. Those who have the knowledge and those who actually want to explain to the public. And this has been extremely difficult, especially here in, in, in Germany, where the lead scientists and virologists and specialists have been bombarded with hate email, death threats. You cannot underestimate the hatred of these people. So COVID has unleashed this new kind of a, a politically aggressive um, 
element in in the in the body polity, and we have to be very careful that even if COVID uh, is brought under control and the pandemic, if it ever will disappear, uh, this this element of 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 um, a different kind of opposition will will not go away quickly. Um, this is the this is uh, an important point to make. The implications for Europe are actually important, and it would be very important for the EU member states and governments to realise that it, this COVID has taught us or showed the weakness of communication between the citizens and governments. And um, this is hugely important that governments and citizens get together and listen to each other. And there's enough problems in the United States with people not listening to each other. There's immense problems here, and we maybe you don't see this from the American point of view, this polarization, people don't listen to each other. The discourses become very angry, uh, very abrupt, um, very rough. And there's been an awful lot of disregard for serious politicians who want to reach out. So essentially, COVID has really fundamentally changed the political discourse. Bringing it back to the centre, creating a kind of centre ground is going to be very difficult to do, but it's actually important for the stability of the European Union member states, but also raises big questions about integration. Um, in some ways, we may have the recovery fund um, spurred by COVID uh, as a kind of huge, big push to get the European economies on the on the path to recovery again. But essentially, uh, COVID has not integrated the European Union. Um, it hasn't made it weaker, but it has showed up all the weaknesses, particularly the element of health. That's my last point about the COVID um, presentation. The health systems are so different across the member states. Um, it's important to remember that there's been a huge uh, exodus of our medical staff, of talented people, of educated people from Bulgaria, from Romania, from Poland, from the Baltic states, over to, to, to Western Europe and what was Britain, who used to be in the EU, over to France, Germany here, it's enormous. Um, we have inherited enormous um, flow of talent. And what does this do? It leaves the hospitals bereft of, of skills, of people, of human resources, of, of, of simply people to look after the sick people. And secondly, um, when you have a huge exodus of talented people, um, you actually lose an element of accountability and questioning and also raising the awareness that the hospitals and the infrastructure, particularly for health, are completely underfunded. This is such an important point. COVID should be the, the example and the recovery funds should be used for building up a serious modern health infrastructure. Health is a human right and also health is about jobs, economy, education, prosperity and making a society healthier. So this is this is an element which hasn't really entered into the debate yet, but it really must, and the European Commission leaders should do this, but on the local level as well, on the member state level. So that's what I shall say about um, the, 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 the challenges with COVID, because they're not going to go away. And if the pandemic is solved, we have to put these on our things to-do list and get them implemented.
Now, the, the climate issue, in some ways, it's a bit like COVID because the, the climate change and the huge ambitious uh, targets presented by the European Union demand two things. They demand communication. It's going to be a very long haul. And they demand the truth that this is going to be extremely costly. Climate change is about changing the status quo. The status quo in how we live, what materials we use for our houses, what kind of windows we put in, what kind of heating, what kind of cars we drive, what kind of food we eat. The whole idea of climate change is still not being presented as, as, as a hard-nosed, long-term change in our way of life. I think governments are a bit afraid of this. I think they're reluctant to tell the truth. The new uh, green um, social democrat liberal government here is really trying to explain to the public that this is going to cost a, a major change in our lifestyle. But because the German economy is deep pockets, there's going to be an awful lot of subsidies for modernizing housing and so on. But the climate change is such a major issue that a bit like COVID, it already has a spin-off with those who deny climate change or those who believe that, they, that they're not being told the truth and there's going to be hardships and those who believe that, frankly, you know, it really doesn't matter and we can't we just live as we are going on. There's an, another element of climate change which I find, I've always found very interesting. The EU has this very special um, way of presenting itself as the, the moral um, leader in some issues. And for years, they've set themselves up as, we are the best who will control the climate, who will limit a degradation of the climate. We will support the Paris Accords and everything else. And the, the other countries outside the EU look to Europe and say, well, really? Are you really doing this despite fossil fuels, despite coal imports in Poland, despite the existence of um, coal, uh, use of coal in, in Germany is going to be phased out. Um, you've got so many different uh, variants in this. But what is interesting uh, about the, the climate change issue is, uh, frankly, this bit of hypocrisy about this, especially when it comes to how we deal with imports and exports. If I may, let me read you out um, uh, data from the Global Carbon Project. This is a, a research outfit. And they wrote recently um, about efforts to cut uh, the carbon footprint in some of the EU member states. And by the way, just so that you know, uh, the European Union wants to have net zero uh, uh, for, carb for, for, using car for the carbon footprint by 2050. Big ambition, hats off to them. But let me read you this. Um, per capita emissions in Denmark, have fallen by about half since 2000. That's great news, no? But the pollution is imports in goods that used to be made there, but whose manufacturing is now outsourced to China and other places has surged in the same period. Take the extra carbon it, its imports have generated in other countries into account. And Danish emissions are down by just one third, according to the data, as I mentioned, from the Global Carbon Project. So a scheme has been mooted to tax carbon emissions, but we don't know if this is going to happen. In other words, there's two sets of, 
of narratives going on. Yes, we're cutting back on all the carbon emissions, but on the other hand, we do export them and then import the products that are made. It's just food for thought on the fact that um, dealing with climate change cannot be put into a package inside the EU. It has enormous ramifications on how we deal with exports and how we deal with imports. And as David said in the very beginning, all the nuts and bolts of, of globalization feed into so many aspects now. And one could argue that the pandemic is a result of globalization because we can all travel it and disease and other elements travel so quickly uh, in this new era. So um, the the bottom line of this presentation of the of the climate change is that a little bit of more humility by the European Union would go a long way, frankly, and more communication by the European Union and all the member states would go a long way in telling the truth, and also more communication in terms of the enormous costs, and if we don't actually go along with these costs, we might as well just close down the planet. I mean, this is as serious as this. Um, but the key thing is transparency, truth, communication, and be very, um, don't be hypocritical in terms of how we deal with exports and imports to deal with climate change. The third issue I get to, oh, this is a very touchy one, is migration. And this is uh, something that the Europeans share with, with the United States. Um, we all know what Angela Merkel did. Uh, she was noble um, and she did it for ethical reasons, moral reasons and legal reasons by opening the borders to um, give one million refugees fleeing the war in Syria and Iraq, but particularly Syria, absolute refuge. And I'm, unless I'm wrong, uh, one little boy was killed for, um, for a very different reason. I don't think one refugee died. Despite the bureaucratic hurdles in the beginning, they all got roofs over their head. I remember visiting hospitals and the doctors said they were shocked by the condition, the physical condition of the cycle and the psychological condition of the refugees. The hospitals opened the doors. It was a very moving experience for me living in Berlin during that year. And hats off to Angela Merkel that did it. And frankly, the Syrian uh, refugees are learning German at a speed even faster than I did. They're trying to integrate. I must say there's an awful lot of talent that, we, that, um, that came to Germany. And this is very, very important. Merkel was demonized for opening the borders. The migration issue it opened a huge, um, huge arguments within the member states. And so many countries just did not want to open the doors to these refugees who really needed security. And um, we now have a situation that the European Union has come out extremely badly from this refugee crisis. Um, frankly, some of the borders are closed. We have still have the Schengen system where in theory, still partly in practice, you can cross the borders without any kind of controls. But Hungary has this barbed wire, barbed wire fence. And um, after so many years, probably 20 years of discussing the need for a refugee and migration policy, it is still not agreed. There was one agreement, but it was thrown out. And there's all sorts of reasons not to have one. 
but it's essentially there's deep divisions in the member states about dealing refu refugees. I, I must um, tell the, the audience, there is a difference between, the, of course, you know this, between refugees and migrants. Refugees who are fleeing and they need security, and it's it's a humanitarian and legal obligation. Migration is another big issue. And uh, people migrate. We know why people migrate. They flee war. They flee conflict. They flee because of climate change desertification. They flee because they want a better life. They flee because they want a perspective. And... Uh, yet the European Union still hasn't got a migration policy on quotas. What's wrong with quotas? And also, um, you, have to, you have to turn around migration the other way and ask, you know, is, is the European Union actually doing enough to deal with migration? Dealing with migration by actually stopping people from uh, crossing over to the Med Mediterranean and doing deals with Libya or other countries to stop them from leaving, that's not a strategy. That's not a policy. That's just plastering over an acute uh, humanitarian problem. Um, oh, I only see I have 50 seconds left. I'm, oh, um, So essentially, um, the whole refugee migration policy has left uh, the European Union weaker, has left it more divided, and we've still put it on the back burner. We will see what happens during this awful war in Ukraine, how the European Union will deal with the refugees uh, coming, from, uh, coming from Ukraine. One last point on migration and refugees. And I do have to spell this out. There's an element of racism here across most European countries. Um, those leaving Syria, Afghanistan, that's another issue, uh, Iraq, there, there are Arabs, Muslims, Syrians, Afghanis, Pashtuns, but they are not in the in the psychology and outlook of the Europeans. Us, and so it would be very interesting to see if the Europeans will open the doors to Ukrainians. Why? Because the Europe, Ukrainians are considered European, and they are not from uh, the Middle East. I have to say this. And it's it's quite shameful um, how how um, these perceptions have shaped the whole migration refugee issue. My last point, um, and I'll be as quick. I, I, I cut it, David. I cut it down to twenty minutes. But can I have another two minutes? Judy, there's actually no rush, so please. Okay. Uh, we will come back point, to you for some Q and A in, in a little okay. while. My last, point, my last point. My last point is. Just tangentially linked, linked to migration. People migrate also because of corruption. But corruption is actually in, not endemic, but it has taken on a very special level inside the European Union. And my colleague also will, will discuss this on how to, on the abuse of funds and so on. But I want to deal with corruption on a different level. It's just not the corruption of giving these rich visas for rich oligarchs coming to Europe. It's just not about corruption in turning a blind eye on ill-begotten gains of wealthy Russian, Kazakhstan, Ukrainian oligarchs settling in parts of Europe without any accountability where the money comes from. I would argue 
to this audience that what has happened to the European Union is that it has corrupted its own language. It has corrupted its language when it comes to elements of deep concern when there's a war going on in Belarus. It has corrupted its language when it comes to values. Values have become a kind of insipid, throwaway word that has lost any kind of deep meaning. Corruption has invaded the kind of bureaucracies of the member states and the bureaucracies of the EU organizations in the sense that they're not, tr not corrupt in the old-fashioned way of, of, of misusing funds. It's, it's a corruption of, of a belief. It's a corruption of ambition. It's a corruption of, of, of the way that they see the world, that soft power can be the substitute or the, 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 the panacea for many of the ills across, across the world. But, and it's the corruption of this kind of ideology that because the EU is based on peace and economic prosperity and um, its solidarity, actually these three words have become so abused, so misused and so corrupt that unless the European Union redefines or finds a new language that has meaning, that is not thrown out lightly, that has depth and that can be followed through, the idea of European integration is not going to work. In European integration, and I must admit, I still want it to work, it's going to be very, very difficult to work because of our different perceptions of threats. Just look how long it has taken the EU to deal with sanctions over Belarus and now Ukraine. It's not going to work because we have different threat perceptions. And fundamentally of all, it's not going to work because we have completely different historical cultural experiences. And these have become so exacerbated over the past couple of years, particularly between the Western European countries and the East European countries. And as we sit here today, it is the Baltic states and Poland who have the empathy to understand what's happening in Ukraine. And for some other countries in Europe, Ukraine is a faraway country. And so we want to just keep our comfort zone intact. So I'm going to wrap up here now and I hope I've managed to link the elements of security, the elements of speaking the truth, the elements of communication, and the elements that actually await Europe if it wants to stick together or just remain and disaggregate group of member states with very little power and very, in, very little influence, which China, no doubt, and Russia will exploit. Thank you very much. Judy Dempsey, thank you very much. You expressed the inadequacy of Europe's embrace of, or its use, of, of how it's using its soft power. But that makes people think, well, therefore, are you calling for the use of more hard power in yes. dealing with these intractable issues? Yes, um, the, the EU 
likes to pride itself on soft power, power and diplomacy. And as we have seen in the Western Balkans, I have seen in other countries, um, the soft power with any kind of serious security, defense or intelligence underpinning, it doesn't go very far at all. And um, I think this is one of the great weaknesses. This is not a call to war. This is a call to actually make sure that diplomacy is supported by the instruments of hard power. Uh, France understands this. Britain, when it was a member of the EU, did. But uh, in Germany, particularly the biggest EU country, simply uh, just doesn't want to discuss the issue. We've been talking about European Union core values. But um, Anna from University of Maine has a question about how does, in her perspective, the loss of religion as a unifying perspective in Europe affect the integration of the bloc? Is there another unifying ideology that could help unite nation states? And of course, this also plays out in the, in the migration and refugee debate. But um, how do we start thinking about a question like that? Yeah, um, this is a, a fascinating question because um, Anna, when you think of the French Revolution, which was which was so radically secular, and it has remained secular ever since, it has certainly shaped uh, the French view on on how on, on the construction of Europe in some ways. So. Um, each country has a very different religious tradition forged through history, forged through, you know, go back centuries. This is the first thing. Secondly, you have to also then consider um, the serious role, but declining role of religion in, in Catholic Poland. Um, while it's declining, it still is quite a force since it's been used by the, by the ruling Law and Justice Party. And it can be manipulated in some ways as well, despite all the scandals in the Catholic Church uh, over the past decade in Poland. But I'm, I wonder, let, 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 me, let me give you a third point. So um, I'm Irish and um, religion was dominated our lives in school, um, at home, um, in, on, the, on, the, on the weekends and so on. And it was it was um it 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 was it was a it was a real not a burden but it it inhibited a kind of free critical thinking and so when we did apply to join the european union and we did uh, join it um the religion became a really open discussion and it just wasn't about pedophilia or what the priests were doing it became an open discussion on how you link religious influence to human rights whether it's divorce whether it's separation whether it's abortion whether it's gay rights and it became a very poison debate in the beginning and then over time it became an immensely mature debate and i think ireland has profited from this element of the decline of religion, which actually did suffocate uh, discussion. This is not to say that religious, religion as a, how, as a personal and, and societal element, it is important for communities. And we've seen here the decline of church attendances in Germany rapidly declining because, of, because younger people are, are going away from it. But there's no doubt that when religion does decline, the kind of communal community bonds do weaken. 
So there's a there's a plus side and a negative side to this. But the bigger question, the loss of religion itself, does it affect the bloc? Orban would say yes, and so would Putin and others, but I don't think so. I think it's it's it, it's a deeper element of, of how uh, the bloc has deep, deep cultural, historical experience and different experiences of war and occupation. You're listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. That was Senior Fellow at Carnegie Europe, Judy Dempsey, as she addressed the topic of Will COVID-19 and climate, migration, and corruption make or break Europe? Her discussion was a part of the 2022 Camden Conference, Europe Challenged, at home and abroad. To hear the extended version of this discussion, please visit camdenconference.org. Our next speaker is Mark Blythe, professor of international economics at Brown University. His topic was Between the Devil and the Deep Red Sea, European Economies, How will they confront a turbulent world? Now we have another candid guest who is on the program at the moment. And I want to introduce Mark Blythe, the professor of international economics at Brown University, also holds a joint appointment in political science. His passion is the study of complex systems, especially those subject to uncertainty and random events. How will Europe's leaders steer their economies in the face of all this? How resilient are European economies? Please let us welcome Mark Blythe, who will examine how, here's the title, Between the Devil and the Deep Red Sea, European Economies, How They'll Confront a Turbulent World. Dr. Blythe. David, thank you. And thank you to everyone for inviting me to be here with you today. Like everyone else, I wish I could physically be there with you. That would be really cool. But unfortunately, we can't be. Um, I'm also incapable because of the pandemic of actually doing anything without PowerPoint slides. And in my line of work, that's actually not too bad because I need to show you certain things and lines and graphs and numbers and all that. When you're just talking them, you can't really do it. So I hope you bear with me as I walk you through this. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk, go back to basically the financial crisis and Europe's response to the financial crisis. Because 10 years ago, big stuff happened in Europe, and it really kind of shaped the European economy for the next decade. And just when we were kind of turning the corner on that, we got hit by COVID. And then just when it seems we're turning the corner on that, they're basically Russia is the spoiler that invades Ukraine and changes the game again. And between all that, the title, which I thought up long before the Ukraine war started, was you are stuck between these two sources of instability now. One is Russia. And the other one is China. I'll let you figure out from your own imagination which ones I was alluding to in the title. So with that, let's get going. 12 years ago, there was a crisis. And that crisis had to do with debt. And you see by 2012, you have a lot of debt in Europe, over 100% debt to GDP in Ireland and Greece and Italy. And with COVID, those numbers have gotten even bigger. We have not reduced the debt in any way, but we have this big thing called the debt crisis. So how did that come about? And I want to tell you two stories, and they're both right, but you only ever really hear about one of them. And the second story is why we responded the way we did and why that was important for figuring out what happens next. So what's the first story? This is the graph you need to see. This is basically how much interest you have to pay to issue debt in the European Union from 1990 all the way to 2011. And what you see there in the middle of that is a great compression of these rates. If you go to the start, the big thick red line is Greece. Greece used to have to pay 25% interest to get someone to buy a bond. 
that's a heck of a lot of cash. But even the more sort of, um, how can one put it, less peripheral became the language sovereigns, like Belgium and Italy and, uh, and even France, you're paying 15% interest back in the day, which is unheard of now. So why was this great convergence to 1999? Well, that's because when the euro came in. And when the euro came in, what happened was this thing called the ECB, European Central Bank. The European Central Bank basically prints the money. Countries no longer have printing presses. And what that means is the ability of countries to inflate their way out of trouble by running the printing presses is gone. And their ability to devalue to solve their economic problems is gone. So they have to run a very tight fiscal ship and make it a very much more orthodox kind of economic policies. In anticipation of this, markets price this in, and what you see is that kind of convergence in bond yields. And then in 2009, the crisis happens, and boom, they all split apart again. So why did that happen? Well, story one focuses on what we call current account imbalances, basically the difference between exports and imports. The red line is Germany. Germany used to run a deficit. Then it became the only people running a surplus with the possible exception of Ireland, and that's too small to really make a difference. Everybody else basically fell into deficit. So how do we explain this situation? And you know a lot about this because you hear about the Germans being super competitive and all this sort of stuff. So what was the story? Well, a lot of it was the fact that these governments, because these price of issue in this debt became so much cheaper, issued a lot of debt. And then they spent a lot of money, and that drove up wages and prices. And that annual growth in government expenditure meant there was more money around, so people imported more and exported less. And all of this was made possible in a way by that convergence, which we talk about as the, the transfer of Germany's credit rating to the whole of Europe. The ECB became, if you will, Deutsche Bank über alles. And inflation and devaluation risks in these bonds taken up, was taken off the table because of the application of strict fiscal rules governing debts and deficits and inflation rates. And that was the yield convergence, which led to the overborrowing, which led to too much money in the system, which led to, particularly in the South, excessive consumption. That massively eroded wage competitiveness because essentially your prices and wages are going up, you're importing, you're not exporting. As you can see here, Ireland, Spain, Italy, Greece, exactly the people that get into trouble. Basically, their unit labor costs are getting very, very high, it's very expensive. So their current account's getting completely out of whack. But the key thing is all of this was made possible by external debt increases. Essentially, borrowing from the north of Europe, the exporters, the so-called frugals, we call them these days, and borrowing in the south. When the inevitable result was when the mortgage crisis hit in 2008 and bank lending dried up, all of those bond yields exploded. And why did they explode? What was the problem? Well, basically, because when you've been issuing all this debt, you've got to be able to service it. And if the banks stop lending and the liquidity dries up and you can't service those bonds anymore, the yields spike and you can't pay that and people start to freak out. Now, that's a good story, but there's something missing in this story, and it's this one. And here's my favorite picture from the financial crisis. Citibank had a, an advertising campaign back in the day called Live Richly. It wasn't save up and buy yourself something nice. It was open a cravings account. And what does that tell us? It tells us that we need to run that story again, because you can't really have overborrowing without overlending. So what else is another interpretation of that chart? Imagine I'm a banker. I make 25% by showing up and buying Greek debt. They might default, but it's still a good gamble. I know that the ECB is going to come along and take all that off the table. So how do I make money on a declining spread of interest rates? I pump up the volume. It's called leverage. 
I just buy tons of that stuff. I like these bonds, even though there's the, the money I make off them is going down. If I buy enough with volume, I can continue to make a ton of cash. The result of this is that foreign banks, i.e. the ones that are buying these bonds, they're lending to and borrowing from these southern sovereigns, end up with, in the case of France and the Netherlands, over 30% of GDP in bonds that are about to go bad. So the result of this was what? Well, this is a really scary picture. This is European GDP in 2012 on the left. That's bank assets. Now, when banks talk about assets, they don't talk like normal people. When you think about an asset, you think about your home. You think about having something that is an asset to you. When banks talk about assets, they're talking about all the money that they've lent to people. So that right-hand column is all the money that they've lent that they might not get back relative to the size of the Eurozone's GDP. Now, the term too big to fail was coined in the United States. And if you look on the left, the right-hand side here, you see US GDP indexed at 100, and you see total bank assets in America. It's about 118. So it's, it's bigger than the country. But let's take a typical example in Europe. There's France. There's GDP indexed to 100. There's total bank assets in 2012, 430. It's four times the footprint of the country. You don't have too big to fail, you have too big to bail. So if you wanna stop a bank run around the bond markets of Europe as everyone freaks out and dump these bonds, what do you have to do? This is the word that was the buzzword of 2012 that I wrote a book about called austerity. Cutting budgets to stabilize bond yields and invest, increase investor confidence. If you have all those banks in your bank's balance sheet and you don't want them to go to zero and you don't want the banks to blow up, you have to get the countries to stop issuing extra debt to stabilize those yields so that they can move forward. Problem was it didn't work. There was no confidence fairy, as Paul Krugman said, that showed up and made everyone feel super good about cutting budgets in the middle of a recession. What actually happened was that growth and real incomes fell throughout Europe, particularly in the South. Doubling down on this in 2012, the union tightened up rather than loosened the budget rules, which made the recession even deeper. The South fell into actual deflation. Austerity wasn't loosened until 2015, and the recovery didn't kick in until 2017. But the problem was the combined effects of this, particularly Northern dominance, Northern and Eastern European countries make their money off of exports, meant that you had a falling value for the Euro and increasingly cheaper wages. All those wage increases were wiped out. That stimulated exports, which was good for those Northern and Eastern countries, but didn't really work for the large Southern economies like Italy and France that are much more consumption-based. This leads to a split in the EU that we still have today between Southern consumption-led economies and Northern and export-led economies. And that's why you basically have chronic surplus, surplus, an overall surplus of the EU against the rest of the world through exports, selling BMWs to China, et cetera. And then you've actually got internal deficits in the budgets in the South because they can't grow their way out of the recession they've been in for the past decade. Now, here's a picture of EU growth since the crisis. As you can see, it's based at zero. Uh, but around 2015, it gets up to around 1%. 2018, it's sprinting towards 2%. But even before COVID, it really starts to slump again. Then there's the huge dumping in COVID, and then a huge springing out, which seems to be a real turning of the corner here. 
Well, what happens was they stop doing austerity for real and actually start spending money. The EU suspends the debt rules because of COVID, creates a $700 billion recovery fund. The Green New Deal actually becomes a real thing and the ECB becomes much more green growth focused, all of which is pushing Europe on a much healthier growth trajectory. But how is that recovery feeling, right? Have a look at this. This is real growth in per capita GDP. And what you see is, like, look at Greece. The blue bar is the first period before the crisis, right? They're, that's growing. That, that's a growing economy. In fact, everyone's growing before the crisis. Look at 2008 to 2018. Greece is negative. Italy is negative. That means that they are poorer now than when they started back in 2007. And everyone else has been crawling along with the partial exceptions of Germany and Ireland. Happy to talk about why that is the case in the, the Q&A. Now, if that wasn't enough and COVID hitting you, in the meantime, the world had completely changed. And the speakers this morning spoke about this, the fact that many of the assumptions that the EU was based on, basically perpetual peace and trade and democracy being permanent fixtures, began to get seriously challenged. And I think that what we can do now is talk about a new geopolitics after COVID that looks like this. And the first one is the disunited States of America. Trump was not an aberration. It's coming back, spoiler alert. Second, China's newfound socialism. Turns out the Communist Party of China was actually communist. The clue was in the name. Who knew? And the EU gets caught in the middle of all this. And the key idea I want to talk about domestically and internationally is the really big problem facing us even before we get to having a major war in Europe was the distribution of politics of climate change. Now, why is that important? Let's start with the USA. Have a look at these two maps. If you look at the electoral map for Trump and then dump it on top of the states of the largest carbon signatures, it's a near perfect fit. So what's been going on? Back in 1971, one in five jobs in America was in auto and one in three was in related industries. The oil shocks of the 70s and the shift to services and finance, et cetera, in the 1980s and 90s concentrates carbon assets in specific states, i.e. Republican ones, not coastal ones. So if you think about political polarization, it's about many things, but it's also about, and you saw this very much with the struggle over Build Back Better and the failure of the Democrats to get it through their own people, is it's a political polarization is really a function of transition trust. That is to say the red states have a carbon-based business model, they're doubling down on it, and they do not trust the blue states that effectively or practically bail them out. Given this, US commitment to decarbonization is in doubt over the long term given this split. So if that's the case, what does that mean? It means that US domestic politics are destabilizing. There's Josh Hawley at the uh, January the 6th riot. The Republican Party is de facto now a right-wing populist party. I disagree with the, the, the ambassador yesterday saying that most populism has passed. We've weathered the storm. We haven't even seen it really begin. What's going to happen next? is that the GOP is going to basically win in 22, possibly in 24. These folks are climate change denialists, not because they don't understand the science, because it's the business model of the core states of their supporters. So Biden will lose the ability to pass legislation in 22. The GOP returns to power in 24. And you can effectively bet that there will be a bonfire of ESG and climate change regulations, and the country will go on a 10-year carbon binge. The problem with this is this is already destabilizing globally because of the pivot away from Europe, which was begun by Obama and has become consolidated and bipartisan in the current moment. The US pullout of Afghanistan belies an enormous defense increase over the next 10 years based on the Navy, which is squarely focused on China. 
the US will defend Taiwan if China invades, particularly now given current events. It cannot afford to look weak. And the US under the GOP in its post-Carmen moment will effectively give up on NATO perhaps Ukraine changes this, and focus on a Pacific isolation strategy with regional players and bilateral arrangements. China has turned inwards. The guy in the background is the guy who is basically the thinker behind all the stuff that you're seeing just now, specifically the common prosperity agenda. The party's turned against other elites, financial, tech, entertainment, and seeks to reduce uh, inequality. Basically, what China did was have a think to itself and said, all right, so the America has generated a whole bunch of billionaires. Um, half the country works for less than $20 an hour. The American dream is unattainable for most people. They're ripping each other's faces off politically. What did we get out of this? Oh, yeah, a couple of, guy with, a couple of guys with spaceships. Let's not go that way. So the party's turning away from property-led growth and financialization and trying to find a new inward-focused, much more equalizing business model. Now, the thing is, they're really ramping up green investment. Here's a tweet that I put out on February the 4th, a thought for the weekend. Last year, China built more offshore wind capacity than the entire world had installed in the previous five years. The previous leader was the UK with 10 gigawatts. China built one and a half X that last year alone. How's your transition going? They are very serious about this stuff. Now, why? Because China's climate politics are globally significant. They're heavily dependent on coal, but Xi has just banned Belt and, coal, belt and Road coal investment. 2060 is a net zero target. They actually want to get to 2050. They banned Bitcoin while pushing a digital renminbi, not just for the environmental footprint, but that was a nice excuse for doing so. Uh, as I've said, they've massively ramped up green tech and basic investment. And they want to dominate the EV market. That's the declared strategic goal of the state. So here's the kicker. If you look at these maps on the side, what are we showing you here? This is the projections for a three degrees Celsius increase in surface temperature affecting China. Basically, around two thirds of its major eastern seaboard becomes uninhabitable for several months a year. It reaches wet bulb temperatures where the body can't cool itself. They have a huge problem and they have every incentive to actually fix it. Now, why is that globally significant? Because it means that they will take climate change seriously exactly the moment that the United States is refusing to acknowledge its existence. The problem is, of course, that while that may be positive, its foreign policy is extremely destabilizing. The commitment to reunify Taiwan is deadly serious. Xi's credibility is now dependent on it. They'll have the capability by 2024, right in time for the US elections. And if you think that COVID was bad for global supply chains, wait until that one goes kinetic. Now, what's the EU been doing? It's a little unfair, this one, but I do like that cartoon. Honestly, I can't tell the difference. Red, blue, red, blue, red, it's all the same to me. Why? What have they been doing? They've been playing hide and trade. Germany's the best example of this. Basically, German foreign policy for the past 20 years has been plane loads of executives from the, from the engineering sector and export sector getting on a plane with Merkel and flying to China to do trade deals. Those deals are still ongoing. You see this in the reticence as we speak. The last holdout for kicking Russia out of SWIFT is Germany. They have a very mercantilist orientation to their foreign policy. 
Now, the EU is rightly worried by the US stance on China and also by China itself. The EU exports, the bit that's been growing since the crisis, are crucially dependent on Chinese growth. Now, the EU in its positive and engaging side sees green tech as a way to cooperate and compete with China. The EU green transition is underway. The ECB and the UK central banks are risk weighting brown assets. There's a lot of asset there. The structural funds are effectively becoming green transition funds. And what does this give us? There's a great book that just came out by Jonas Nam that talks about this, that basically says the following. It's going to push China and the EU together on green investments. I have a golden retriever here that I think is telling me I'm going to go pee on the floor unless you let me out soon. So I may have to run off for a second, but let's see how that goes. Um, why does What does this give us? US policy in China pushes China and EU together on green investments. Why? Country with leading edge large export sectors can adapt to green tech easier. Here's an interesting fact. According to Jonas's research, 40% of the output of the middle stand, the German industrial sector, already goes into green tech. Right? It doesn't matter if they're making the ball bearings for a diesel engine or for a windmill. You want it to be in the one that's still going to have a market in 10 years, and that is not diesel engines. You also have enough organized labor that you can effectively do coalitions that internalize the cost of the transition, and that allows you to make the politics of the transition much easier. The US doesn't have any of that. It sent all its export capacity to China. It's good on innovation, but stops it getting the IP or the exit and cashing out and marrying a supermodel. The US risks becoming dependent on green tech made elsewhere, even if it avoids open conflict. But for the next 10 years, if the GOP are in charge, they won't even care if they get it. And if there is a conflict with China, this will split NATO and empower China over the long term. The wild card. You knew it had to be in here. Russia is a system spoiler. The EU is heavily dependent on Russian gas and oil. We know this. Russia is also a swing producer in wheat as well as in oil and gas. It's a critical source of rare earths, and US militaries are not credible, uh, EU militaries are not credible threats due to decades of underinvestment. So where does all this leave us? Where do we go from here? I think there are two scenarios going forward. The first one is Russian aggression encourages the EU to accelerate the green transition. That in fact, what we were going to do in 15 years, what we're trying to do in five years is we decouple from gas and go as green as possible. Given this, and there's no reason why not, because the technological capacity is there, what is lacking is the political will, the EU becomes the global leader on green tech and adaptive technologies. To safeguard that, you're going to have to rebuild the EU military's capability and make that credible. And then the EU and the US rebuild their rules-based order based upon these actions. That is the good outcome. What is the bad outcome? EU dependence on Russia plus stagflation leads to backsliding, not on democracy, but on the green transition. The EU becomes dependent on Chinese green tech. The US abandons NATO and the EU fails to compensate militarily, thereby becoming incredible actors. Lots of talk about norms, but no ability to enforce them. And what we get to is exactly what Putin is after, the return of spheres of influence. We are in the middle of incredibly turbulent times. We have two massive problems. One is you've got a system spoiler that actually threatens with nuclear weapons and is dangerously unstable. At the same time, you have a green transition whereby the carbon budget is pretty much being exhausted. And if you don't get real soon, you're in the type of trouble that even Putin can't imagine. There has never been a more important time for Europe to come together. There has never been a more important time for Europe to act as one. If it does it at this moment in time, it's going to be crucially important because America is going to be out of the game for the next 10 years, in my estimations. 
What then matters is the relationship that we have with China and then how we manage the green transition and how we effectively isolate Russia. And I will leave it at that point. We have a question from a gentleman named John Reed uh, from here in Camden. Has Russia, in essence, given up on economic integration with Europe in exchange for what will be a subordinate relationship with China? Does this imply that values are more important than economics to Mr. Putin? I would say that's the case. I mean, you've got someone who is never going to leave power. He set himself up to basically be in power until I think it's 85 or 86 or something like this. So what's the end game? Well, the end game is clearly challenging the post-Cold War order and trying to re-establish some degree of Russian hegemony over these areas. Um, I had uh, had the pleasure of having Dr. Fiona Hill here at Brown yesterday to give a talk. And she spoke about it this way, and I thought it was a fantastic way of thinking about it. The West in general operates with a 20th century conception of governance that has to do with things like rights, not just personal rights, property rights. So you own stuff, you get to do things with it. In Putin's conception, it's a 19th century Russian feudal understanding of territory and property and rights. You are given these things as grants by the Tsar. You don't really own them. If you're Khodorkovsky and you go off and try and sell that national oil, that oil company to a bunch of foreigners, you're in jail. And his attitude towards Ukraine is the same. Essentially, no, 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 you don't really own this territory. You're not really, you're just whatever we decide. So it's a very different way of thinking about the entire project, if you will, of rule and governance. Now, it's massively out of step with everyone, including the Chinese. Does he want to become a kind of rump carbon producer at a time when everybody else is making the transition happen? His bet is that we're going to screw up the transition. His bet is that it's not going to happen. And right to the end, we're going to be drowning ourselves in oil and carbon. And he's going to be one of the primary producers and he's going to benefit from it. A uh, question from Ryan Young of Brewer, Maine, which is near Bangor. Do you think that uh, China, in the end, will outcompete the EU in its decarbonization project? Well, that tweet that I put, I, I put out for a reason, I, yeah. I couldn't believe it. I mean, the one that I used to know was in 2015, China installed more solar than the U.S. had. Uh, apparently, they're just doing this every year. And as I say, they've got every reason to do so. If they don't do something to reduce global temperatures, then places like Shanghai and Beijing become effectively unlivable within a three-degree window, and we're well on track for that. So in order to get there, will they end up leading? If the incentives point the right way, I guess. And if Europe basically doesn't step up to the plate and really commit to doing this and leave all this nonsense from the 1990s about budgetary rules and fiscal rigor and all this nonsense behind, they're simply not going to be able to finance the type of transition to compete with China. Thank you very much for your wisdom. This has really been important stuff. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. This week, we are featuring talks from the 2022 Camden Conference, Europe Challenged, at home and abroad. Featured speakers are exploring the adversities Europe faces. Today was a two-part session featuring Judy Dempsey and Mark Blythe. The extended version of these discussions, including questions from the audience, is available at camdenconference.org, as well as all of the 2022 Camden Conference talks and panel discussions. This program was pre-recorded on Saturday, February 26, 2022, for broadcast at this time. If you missed part of this program or want to hear it again, 
You can always find it on our website, mainpublic.org. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Kimaladun. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.